The social and political upheaval of the Irish Civil War profoundly affected the lives of families and communities across Ireland. The conflict was, for many, too painful to discuss. There are, of course, many accounts of the more famous names and the well-known events of the war. But ordinary men and women, be they combatants or civilians, were usually reluctant to talk about what they experienced or witnessed at that time. This is why oral history is so valuable. The memories and stories recorded on tape for posterity, especially when they are stories which people never discussed with friends and family or passed down to the next generation. This evening we're going to hear voices recorded in 1979 for an oral history initiative called the Urban Folklore Project, which is held in the National Folklore Collection at UCD. We begin with D.V. Horgan, who was on the pro-treaty side. He was a commandant in the Free State Army. And here he's recalling how he felt carrying out raids on the houses of people that he knew personally in Cork during the Civil War. One of the things, the most obnoxious thing that I could find was raiding houses and people that I knew. But again, I was a junior officer and that was that. This was something that really hurt me an awful lot. And it hurt an awful lot of, of us, but it was a question of survival, you know, at that time. And uh, we were fair game, so this was it. The Civil War is a bitter war, as you'll find through history, in any campaign where you've had a division within a nation, it can be a very, very bitter one. I'm joined now by Dr Christor McCarrig, Director of the National Folklore Collection at UCD, who has brought us a selection of extracts from this oral history project. Christor, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Could you explain the background, first off, of the big collection, the National Folklore Collection, the kind of material that's contained in it? We just heard a great example of it there. Well, the National Folklore Collection builds on the work of the Irish Folklore Commission, which was established in 1935 and its predecessor, the Irish Folklore Institute, set up in 1930. And they had a very broad remit uh, in collecting folklore. It was one of the flagship projects, I think, for the government at the time, that in the Place Names Commission, you know, projects that focused on native Irish identity. And the, really the thrust of the commission was to, was to capture, preserve, to rescue, in, in Seamus O'Delarga's words, he was the first honorary director of the commission. So as part of their collecting efforts, they would, of course, record a lot of the, the verbal arts, storytelling, traditions, customs, beliefs, and a lot about material culture. It was a very holistic approach to collecting. But historical tradition featured very strongly in the work of the commission. And primarily events from the 19th century It's quite interesting to note that, you know, in the 1930s, there was little effort made to record details about the revolutionary years. They they were almost too close, Mm. you know. So they would talk about the land war and they would talk about... They would talk about the land war and the, the famine and Parnell and the Home Rule Party and so on. But really, effectively, from the First World War on, the attention, the focus really is on shall we say, 19th century rather than uh, contemporary. 
So when people had actually fought in the Civil War, more often than not, they wouldn't want to talk about it. What was the response to the urban folklore project from veterans? Because there were still many of them alive in 1979, 1980, when the project was ongoing. Many were interviewed and uh, this was a project to record what life was like in Dublin. It wasn't specifically about the uh, the Irish Revolution, wasn't specifically about the uh, the Civil War, but that material crept in, didn't it? It did. And uh, I think the Urban Folklore Project set out to, I suppose, to to target, to locate people who were active participants in the revolutionary period. However, they also interviewed a lot of other people, ordinary citizens. But by and large, the veterans were very happy to speak about what happened. Now, as to whether they weren't detailed, questioned in, in huge detail, about every single event, but they were happy to provide a narrative, their own narrative of what they remembered. And about a quarter of the people who were interviewed were actually veterans of the revolutionary period. This is very true. And I, I would imagine, Miles, that in, in the wake of the 1966, uh, the 50th you know, commemoration of 1916, uh, and perhaps too, to some degree, against the backdrop of the troubles, as they were at the time, there was a, a, a greater focus of interest on that revolutionary period. And it's really only from the, certainly the 60s and 70s that we begin to really make use of oral history and, you know, treat it as a, as a serious subject for historical investigation. Interestingly, also, 190 veterans were recorded. 84 of them were women. That seems to be a very high percentage. Yes, because another... Focus uh, not just on the on the combatants, but also on Kamalaman, many of whom were were of course combatants, but also facilitated and furthered the cause of the the revolutionaries uh, around them. So they were targeted as well, just as as all other veterans of the period. Let's hear a, another clip from the collection uh, featuring two women. This is Mrs. Monaghan from Herberton Road. She's talking about two brothers she knew, who were on opposite sides in the Civil War. Do you know, there was families, I knew them down in Hanover Street, and one brother was in the Free State, and yeah. the other was ah, in yes. the other. And they used to be, when they come in at dinner, and they'd be out with knives, fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was terrible. The brother against brother story that we know so well, but I'm sure there were with 84 women contributing, there were quite a few sister against sister stories as well. Um, but that's illustrated by somebody who witnessed it at first hand. In this clip, we hear Mrs. Kerwin from Rathfarnham. She was very young during the Civil War, but uh, here she recalls being at the funeral of Michael Collins. Yeah. I saw Michael Collins' funeral, gone along Stephen's grave. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember they had a slogan out that time, lie over Mick and make room for Dick, Dick Mulcahy. I was only a very small child at the time. And it was big, it must be very big. Huge. To me, of course, I seemed to be standing there for hours on steps on Stephen's Green. My mother brought me. You'd wonder how many children repeated that slogan over and over again, uh, over make and make room for Dick without understanding what the heck they were talking about. Now, um, you also brought a clip from a man named Patrick Galvin. Um, he talks about losing his job. That I presume is not the Patrick Galvin who was the, uh, the, the playwright and songwriter and all of that kind of stuff. Different one. No, no. And uh, he laments the fact that, you know, after the war, having taken the 
joined the losing side, as it were, the anti-treaty side, that as a result he lost his job in a, a shop in Fleet Street because that would have been dominated by free state or pro-treaty people. OK, let's hear the voice of Patrick Galvin. I had no job. I, the one that I had in the electric light in Fleet Street, of course, you may say, I lost that. Uh, after the Civil War was over, what really happened was, of course, let me just say, that they happened to know, you see, of course, that I was out against them, you see, certain people in the job I should have I, I should have objected to because we were put there, we were, after the Tan War, you see, never to be sacked when there, was a, when there was work there. And, of course, if you had a different opinion with some people that was working at the job, you see, right, you were gone. So that's what happened to me. I was gone because they knew, you see, of course, that I fought against the, on the Republican side, I fought against the state, and I was sacked. In, in so many cases, oral history may have been the only way that a person or an event was actually remembered. But um, from what you were saying earlier, uh, we can assume that it wasn't always accepted as valid historical testimony. I think most historians would agree that it, it's really only into the, the latter half of the 20th century that oral history, oral testimony was taken taken seriously. And that's to some degree because it's confused with oral tradition. Oral history, you could say, is recorded from people who observed or were participants in contemporary events. But oral tradition is passed on from generation to generation. So it's memories about memories, if you like, in some ways. If I can stereotype it as people talking about fairies, for example. That's <clears throat> the oral tradition. Yes, and historians would have suspected it and felt that, you know, mythological um, concepts and so on uh, uh, are cr- crept into the narrative. So it lacked the hard facts, or at least built on those hard facts. However, you know, oral tradition for the community is about meaning. You know, what was the outcome? What was the outworking of a, of an event? And how did it impact on the, the collective memory? Because even if there is a lot of mythology <laughs> in oral history or oral tradition, obviously there's a lot in oral tradition, it's still significant because this is what people believed, this is what people thought, this is what drove them and motivated them. Exactly. And, and it's, if you like, it's, it's a collectively agreed narrative among the community and it draws on imagery that really highlights the you know the importance of an event what was its significance you know to the community that's what's remembered now there's a new initiative by the National Folklore Collection at, at UCD in collaboration with RTE with uh, Scratch Films and with uh, government funding and you're reaching out to people to come forward to tell the stories that were passed down to them from those who lived through the, uh, the the Civil War. Tell us a little bit about the Civil War Memory Project. Unlike the Urban Folklore Project, most people from that time are, are long dead. So who are you reaching out to? Well, we're, we're, we're spreading the net as wide as we can, Miles, and we're asking people to share narratives that they may have heard from their parents or indeed grandparents or neighbours around them. Obviously, it's 100 years, a lot of water has flown under the bridge since that time. So I think this is an opportunity to capture now, perhaps our last meaningful opportunity to capture much of the local tradition, especially, you know, what happened on the ground and to sample, you know, what are they, how, how strong are the feelings? What was the impact, the wider impact socially 
and even polit- politically, because of course we know the inheritance, the the, the legacy of uh, of political division between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and so forth. There could be people listening who think, well, I don't have a story to tell, but you want them to to look into their hearts, I suppose, to some extent, because they may actually have a story to tell. It's not just about getting the, the stories of the big ambushes and the personalities. You also want to hear about the experiences for communities from all over the country and how it impacted. Exactly, Miles. They Really what we'd like to do is to encourage people to think of an event, however small, a detail, however small, that throws more light on what happened. So even though a grandparent or a relative was not directly involved in activities at the time, nonetheless, the events themselves are remembered strongly at a local level. So somebody who may not have had any or whose family were not directly involved, nonetheless, there are witnesses mm traditions and, and accounts, witness accounts that have passed down over generations and we'd like to tap into those. And there's a documentary being made about the project as it continues. Yes, to some degree, I, I suppose it's an opportunity for us all to you know, to go through the process of collecting and, and witness the strength of feeling, you know, to test the waters to some degree. How much detail has lingered on into the present times and how willing people are to talk to us and and from our feelers from contacting people we've been phoning people and writing to people uh, for several months now and uh, we would urge people to come forward because what they consider to be small or trivial may indeed throw a lot of interesting light on events. Even if it's only a verbal paragraph it doesn't matter it could make a difference. Exactly. How do people get in touch if they want to be involved in the project? So they can contact us there's a team of people at History at scratchfilms.com. They can also contact us directly at uh, UCD in the National Folklore Collection. And we have uh, an email address there, Bill Idis, B-E-A-L-O-I-D-E-A-S, the Irish word for folklore, at ucd.ie. Well, we've just been hearing uh, a sample of some of the interviews that were recorded for the Urban Folklore Project from 1979 to 1980 and fantastic sound quality, I have to say, as well. And they're held in the National Folklore Collection in UCD. In this final clip you brought, I think this is a really, really fascinating clip. Um, We're going back to Commandant D.V. Horgan, whom we heard earlier, and he illustrates the whole thing of very, very graphically brother against brother. Tell me about this. Yes, a very graphic account. Commandant D.V. Horgan, he was interviewed in Dublin as part of the Urban Folklore Project, but of course he, he was a corkman. And he served in the National Army, in the Free State Army, the pro-treaty side. Uh, but his brother, Ned, was an anti-treaty supporter. And uh, their poor mother had to keep the peace and ensure that the two never met because, of course, they were on opposing sides. And Horgan had the unenviable task of, as so many Free State Army soldiers, of raiding and rooting out former comrades. OK, so here once again is the testimony of D.V. Horgan. I held one thing, Ned held the other. And my mother, God rest her, uh, used to try and... If I came first, I went into the kitchen. And if Ned came 
first he went into the kitchen, but if I came second or he came second, we went into the parlour, which was the just two rooms in, a, in an old-fashioned house that we lived in on the Lashian Road, you know. Mm. But there was no, there was no bitterness, no nothing. From so you'd, you'd often meet in the house when you were actually in the National Army and when he was in the Irregulars? No, I would never meet him. My mother would ensure that if I were first, right. I would be in the kitchen. And if he were first, he would be in the kitchen. And when I arrived then, and if I couldn't get into the kitchen, I knew Ned was in the kitchen. Mm. That was the way it was. And my unfortunate mother, who had to kind of keep the dividing line and look after both of us at the same time. And uh, credit to Seamus McPhillips, who recorded many of these testimonies and did a, a fantastic job. As I say, the sound quality of those recordings is truly excellent. Interestingly, our researcher, uh, Liz Gillis, had a look at Ned Horgan's Bureau of Military History witness statement in the course of which he doesn't even mention the fact that he had a brother, which is tragic and very, very sad in its its own way. But that was the voice of D.V. Horgan, brother of Ned Horgan, D.V. Horgan of the National Army, talking about how his mother dealt with the fact that her two sons were on opposite sides of the Civil War. We'd have to leave it there, but uh, if anyone would like to get in touch with the Civil War Memory Project, email history at scratchfilms.com. And if you'd like to hear uh, some recordings from veterans, there's a selection of the National Folklore Collection website or on the website and it's the Remembering 1916 page. The address is ucd.ie slash folklore slash 1916. We've all the details up on our website. My guest is Christopher McCarthy and thank you Christopher for joining us and uh, all the very best with the Civil War Memory Project. Thank you Miles.